0: Finance and History, the EABH podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history? Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Welcome to this episode of Finance and History, the EABH podcast. My name is Carmen Hofmann, and I am the Secretary General of EABH. EABH is the European Association for Banking and Financial History a leading financial history organization that brings together financial practitioners, historians, and archivists to discuss precedents from the exciting world of financial history. We are an international, independent, non-for-profit organization. And you can get in touch on bankinghistory.org at our website or on Twitter if you would like to collaborate. Today, my guest is Mario Pisani. Mario is a senior civil servant at the HM Treasury, the United Kingdom's finance and economics ministry, where he has worked for the past 16 years in a range of roles in macroeconomics, policy and strategy. He is also a visiting professor at King's College London, where he is a member of the teaching panel for the course The Treasury and Economic History since 1945. Welcome, Mario. I'm very pleased to have a conversation with you today. Mario, our topic will be who finances the financiers and we will discuss the role of the Treasury during its long-standing history. Before we start though, can I ask you, why are you passionate about financial history?
1: Thank you, Carmen. It's a real pleasure to be able to do this uh, podcast. Why am I passionate about financial history? Well, my day job is as a government official therefore my job is really about finding solutions to problems and you know to do that we bring insights from economics from policy from financial management but i think that financial history is another tool that you can use as well and many of the the challenges that i see day to day in my work at uh, her majesty's treasury um, uh, are challenges that have been somewhere or other occurred in the past so i think that having a good understanding of the financial and economic history either of your policy or of your institution or of the economy as a whole, helps us produce better policy advice. So that's why I think financial history is so important.
0: Oh, that's, that's a very nice way of looking at it, to see it as um, one of the necessary ingredients for decision-making. Obviously not the only one, but a very relevant one. So now tell us who or what is the Treasury and how old is it really?
1: Thank you, Carmen. As you said at the beginning, Her Majesty's Treasury is the UK United Kingdom's uh, Finance and Economics Ministry, and uh, we are also one of the oldest ministries in the UK government. The history of of the function, if you like, of a treasurer can be traced back uh, many centuries, and the role of an official treasurer or someone who is in charge of administering the finances of the monarch goes back to at least uh, the Norman period, which is the, the 11th century, but some people say that is even older. So with uh, nearly 1,000 years of history, the Treasury is one of the oldest um, departments in the UK administration. Um, it has evolved a lot in that time, obviously. Um, the concept of the Exchequer, the predecessor of the Treasury as an institution, dates back to the 12th century. The Exchequer had a role in monitoring both receipts, so tax receipts coming in, but also issuing the funds for expenditure. In the 17th century, the role of the single treasurer was replaced by a commission, so a group of people that performed the function. And then later on by the 17th century, the second half, treasury was already in a department with most of the legal powers in terms of formulating policy, raising revenue, and working with parliament that we see today. If you turn then to perhaps the second half of the 20th century, you see a continuation of this everlasting purpose for the Treasury. And that's the purpose of ultimately controlling the public finances, keeping oversight of the financial sector and ensuring that the economy grows as rapidly as possible. What we do see in the second half of the 20th century is uh, an institution that while retaining that core purpose evolves quite a lot in terms of how it's organized. The longest standing function of the Treasury is always being spending control. So controlling the amount of funding that goes to other ministries. But um, with the advent of economics as a profession in the middle of the 20th century and economic management as an aspect of policy, that is something that the Treasury takes on after the war and the 1950s. And then between the 50s and the present day, the Treasury has also given away a lot of its powers. For example, it no longer has oversight of uh, personnel and salary management in public administration. It's also given away responsibility for galleries and museums. And crucially and famously, a uh, controller of monetary policy, which is being passed on to the, to the Bank of England. And we'll say more about the Bank of England later.
0: Perfect. That is very interesting. So basically, um, if we think about it that way, the Treasury in, in its role and in, in a certain uh, way of, of supporting governance has been around or is as old as the monarchy itself. So basically, without a treasurer, there's no monarch. And probably, you know, it evolves over time, Um as much as the monarchy does as well. So um, it's an interesting view to see it in this continuity, but as well you gain some, you lose some powers. So how powerful is the treasury still and, and how does it do what it does?
1: This is a very interesting question and I I try to get at it a little bit in my research uh, where I look at the last 20 years of uh, the treasury's accounts, but In a way, I have a good uh, way to thinking about this, which is talking about the three Ps uh, that give the Treasury its power and its role, and they're the Treasury's policies, it's linked to the political system and also its people. So let me say a little bit about each one in turn. First, if you think about the Treasury's policies, clearly having control over the allocation of public spending to other ministries and having control over some major macroeconomic policies like fiscal policy or the regulation of the financial sector gives the Treasury a huge amount of power because you can control which areas of government get the funding. You can be in charge of the overall performance of the economy. Second is the politics. And it's worth remembering that in the UK system, there's a very strong link between the Treasury and our main minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the, the centre of government and the prime minister who's at, um, in Downing Street. You know, this is exemplified, if, for example, by the fact that they both have the official residences next to each other, number 10 Downing Street and number 11 Downing Street. And over the decades, we've seen some very successful partnerships between prime ministers and chancellors and some less successful ones. And clearly, the way it works, the chancellor can only really exert his control over public spending with the backing of the prime minister. And... Equally, the Prime Minister can only be successful politically if he has the backing of the Chancellor with the finances to back the policies. There's also a strong link between the Treasury and Parliament because Parliament's, one of the main objectives is to scrutinise public spending and to make sure that it happens appropriately. So therefore, Parliament and the Treasury have objectives that are aligned in the sense that they both want to make sure that public money is well spent. Third, there's the, the people of the Treasury, and it's worth emphasising that the Treasury compared to other uh, ministries in the UK system is quite small and, uh, and therefore that makes it a very flexible and adaptable department so is very able to respond quickly to the evolving economic and political context. That is partly as well because as a department, we don't have um, very large delivery responsibilities, which have to be planned over a long time period and quite hard to change. So I would say that's where the Treasury's power comes from, its policies, uh, the politics and its people.
0: You describe us a little bit as the joker of the system, the one who is uh, able to interconnect with everybody, but then being flexible enough to be quick as well. And um, I'm going to skip um, what we wanted to talk about and um, change a little bit. So you were talking about um, this relationship with the Bank of England. And well, to me, that is a, a close, a special and a bit of an opaque relationship. And like every relationship, it sounds a lot that there. There is some struggles of power going on. So who do you think is more powerful? Is it the Treasury or the Bank of England? Or are you equal in this regard?
1: That's a really good question. And I think it's it's evolved over time. And it's worth maybe explaining a little bit about the relationship between the Treasury and the Bank of England. As many of listeners will know, the Bank of England was established in the late uh, 17th century, 1694. And the original idea was to create a private bank whose main business would be to lend money to the government at the time the England was in a, in a war against France and money was needed urgently so the government um, gave the bank a monopoly on a charter to become a limited liability jointly owned banking institution in return for a loan of at the time just 1.2 million sterling in perpetuity which was used uh, to fund the war and in a way That then led to the creation of of the monetary system in sterling, And it meant that the bank and the Treasury were interlinked. So in a way, it's a bit of a mirage to think that these are institutions that are separate. I mean, from the very inception, they've been linked and they're still linked today. And the links were strengthened further in the 1940s when the Bank of England was nationalized. And that means that today, HM Treasury is the sole shareholder of the bank, And Treasury Ministers appoint all the key personnel at the Bank of England, the Governor, all the Deputy Governors, and all the independent members of the Bank's court. That's what the Bank of England called their Board of Directors. It's actually my, the the team that I currently lead in HM Treasury, provide policy advice uh, regarding the shareholder role that the Treasury has uh, for the Bank of England. But the Treasury doesn't only own the Bank's capital, also stands behind it as an institution should it experience uh, severe financial losses. Um, we're also policy partners when it comes to many macroeconomic or financial sector policies. Treasury ministers also act as the legislators for any laws that are needed to make sure that the bank can perform its functions. And the Treasury is also a customer for some of the services that uh, the Bank of England provides, like um, banking services or management of assets, et cetera. So the relationship is long-standing and quite deep. And I would characterize it as one of great cooperation, but at points in times, always some creative tension, I would say.
0: That's a very good summary. And um, I was probably um, so aware that as you describe it, you and and the way you organize the tasks both of the institutions have, you're much more often um, facing them in in cooperation that you don't probably. So I think that's new to me and probably to some other of our listeners. So you were mentioning that the Treasury is, for example, the sole shareholder of the bank, and um, if we see the continued expansion of the bank's quantitative easing program, for example, it is ensured that this will remain the Treasury's largest balance sheet item for some time. and. Obviously, this is a direct consequence of what happened um, in 2008 and 2009, when the world experienced the great financial crisis. And you call this event like a story of two halves. So you're saying that basically there was a a role and um, a world before what happened in 2008 and the following policy reactions. And then now there is the world after for example, in the case of the Treasury, I read in your paper that in 2008 2009, the annually managed expenditure reached 85 billion. If I understood that correctly, it was a, a movement from millions toward billions. So the Treasury took on a lot of the consequences of the financial security interventions of the bank during the crisis. And from this point onwards, it is the biggest single item on each year's accounts. So is that correct? And and what is um, the overall consequence of this shift from a a world pre-2008 and post-2008?
1: In my paper, I basically look at the last 20 years of the Treasury's resource accounts. Um, The Treasury as an institution only started producing resource accounts in the late 1990s. And those 20 years tell a a very interesting story in many aspects. But for me, one of the key takeaways is how much the, the balance sheet expands um, around the time of the global financial crisis and to put it in context um, pre-financial crisis the treasury's balance sheet um, was made up of around 2 billion sterling worth of assets and that jumps by 2009 10 to something like 120 billion sterling worth of assets and you know there's a number of factors that drive that Obviously and famously, during 2008, the Treasury had to intervene to help capitalise some parts of the UK financial sector, most famously the Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyds Banking Group, and um, they they acquired some 60 billion sterling worth of shares in these entities. They also had to um, take on some financial firms that were fully nationalised, like Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley. Uh, That's not the whole story. There was also loans to other financial institutions to help them uh, meet their obligations towards their customers. But thirdly, there was um, the thing you started with, actually, the the quantitative easing programme. It's quite interesting, actually, that the relationship between the bank and the Treasury also had these two halves. Before the financial crisis, the single biggest balance sheet item that the Treasury had was the shareholding of capital in the Bank of England. And then because of quantitative easing, which in the United Kingdom is op- operationalized by the Bank of England, but fully indemnified by the treasury. So that means that the treasury stands behind the bank should they incur any losses when they eventually sell the bonds that they have bought through uh, quantitative easing. And that creates um, a balance sheet item on the treasury's own balance sheet, which today is still the biggest balance sheet item just because the size of the quantitative easing program has grown so much. So this is uh, an inflection point in history not only in the history of the financial sector, but also the history of the Treasury's own accounts and the history of the relationship between the Treasury and the Bank of England.
0: Maybe I'm being very simplistic in summing that up in the way that the bank spends and you got it on your balance sheet as a loss. Is that the correct way of looking at it? And if that is really the case, are you worried about this development at all?
1: The curious thing is that because at the moment, the quantitative easing program has been mostly in an expansionary mode. So they've mostly been uh, purchasing assets. What we have at the moment is mostly a, a net asset position in the Treasury's own account. And that is because all the government bonds that have been bought are valued at uh, market rates. And at the moment, they got quite good market values. But obviously, there will be a point in the future, and this has been known from the beginning, where depending on what happens in the economy, the Bank of England might decide to dispose of some of these assets and at that time that would lead to market reaction and that may, may mean that the valuation changes. But you know the one thing we know about the Treasury's accounts but more broadly the public sector balance sheet is that obviously as the tax raising authority the government has um, an infinite capacity to generate income through the tax system. So in a way it's possible to be in a net liability position for an extended period without this leading to any adverse consequences. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about it.
0: Okay, I, I I hear you saying that that you're quite comfortable that there will be enough room to manoeuvre in, in case um, the asset-holding uh, situation changes and there will be enough uh, room for all the participants in this to, to take uh, the right actions. Now that we have been talking about uh, 2008 and what happened there, we are in kind of in the middle of sort of what, well, probably will be called a big crisis as well in a few years. We'll have to see if, if that will really happen. I mean, there is discussions at the moment whether we will see a post-pandemic boom or if we will have the opposite developments. But do, do you think we, we will see the, the same massive change in, in policy after um, 2020, 2021 or is the current monetary and financial policy just a response and a continuation to what started in 2008?
1: So I think the crisis caused by the global pandemic in 2020 is quite different from the crisis that many advanced economies saw around 2008, nine with the global financial crisis. And the reason it's different is because I think the, the pandemic shock is one that starts through the real economy first, rather than being a shock that starts in the financial sector and then translates to an impact on the real economy. And therefore, I think that in a way, the, this time around, the fiscal authorities have been perhaps bigger actors in the response to the crisis. And that is because ultimately a real economy shock can only really be mitigated by the fiscal authorities and their capacity to generate income and support the economy as a whole. It's worth maybe clarifying here that there's a difference between the Treasury's own accounts and the financing that the Treasury does on behalf of the whole government. So obviously when the treasury raises money through financial markets to support uh, the economy as a whole, those liabilities are not necessarily held by the treasury itself. They're held by what we call the central funds, which are part of the exchequer. And obviously the financial year 2020, 2021, so the financial year that finished uh, for the UK at the end of March this year, saw a huge expansion in the amount of money that the UK government had to borrow. To put it into context, I think the peak year during the global financial crisis saw, saw borrowing of around 220 billion sterling. And last year, the borrowing uh, was over 400 billion sterling. And this has been the case in many advanced economies who've been hit by the impact of the pandemic. And you know, all the governments which rightly have had to step in to um, prevent an even worse outcome by not supporting uh, businesses and, and households in the face of the pandemic.
0: Excellent. I think that was a very important um, differentiation um, to make between your own accounts, the government accounts, and as well, the differences in the nature of the two crises we were facing in the last 15 years. So you mentioned that um, basically the challenges that institutions are facing in in other countries in the UK and globally, they're the same. But if you would look at the um, the history of the Treasury and history of your system, would you see more um, parallels with other European countries or the US or the global situation? Or do you think um, the UK system and arrangement is quite unique?
1: I would say some things are similar. Some things are different. But I would say the similarities outweigh the differences. And this is because the impact of the pandemic has been broadly comparable across the advanced economies. And crucially, a consensus has developed over the past 30 years or so in all advanced economies about the conduct of macroeconomic policy, such that the response has not been that different. What I mean there is that for most of the advanced economies, we all have independent central banks. We have an inflation targeting regime. We have fiscal frameworks frameworks based on, on a pre-commitment to certain fiscal rules and so on and so forth. So, you know, that sort of response has been quite similar at least when it comes to the economics going forward and obviously one thing about 2020 is that we're only at the very beginning of the of the crisis in a way you know it'll take many years to fully appreciate the impact of the events of the last year Uh, the institutional differences between countries might come out a little bit more so one big difference between the UK and other countries is that for us the nation treasury we are both the the finance ministry and the economics ministry so we care both about sustainability of the public finances But we also have to come up with policies that are going to help promote better growth um, after the crisis. Um, I know that in other countries, for example, Germany, these two functions are performed by different ministries. So a good thing to to observe over the next few years will be whether internalizing that tension in one institution leads to better outcomes than having the responsibilities um, distributed across two different institutions. But I would say that's only a small difference to compared to the very many similarities that I see between the advanced economies.
0: Thank you very much for clarifying that. Indeed, we will uh, keep a, a close eye on on these little differences and how they play out for those countries in the next years. While we are talking, I was thinking um, of something else because you said in the beginning that history is one of the ingredients for good decision-making. And now I was thinking when you were facing um, the challenges of the separation of uh, the UK from the rest of Europe, so were you looking at some historical precedents? Were there moments in history you pay close attention to in order to prepare for this? Or is it more that the Treasury is not so much worried about these changes at all?
1: I would say that in Treasury, we have a good tradition of trying to incorporate historical insight into the way we develop policy. But it does vary. It varies across area, and it varies depending on the context. I mean, as you can imagine, if you're in a fast-moving crisis situation, you don't always have the, the bandwidth to be able to go and research the historical record. Um, However, we got certain approaches to training and the way we encourage an interest in history among our officials, such that a lot of the historical background is sort of already in people's minds before they need to develop policy or think about things. I mean, in the example that you mentioned about the UK exit from the European Union, we have uh, had some very successful engagement with the academic community in the UK to think about other times in history when for example, the UK has taken part in important negotiations with other international partners, going back to the Treaty of Versailles or even the Maastricht negotiation. I remember we also run various workshops looking at previous referenda because you remember that the referendum in 2016 wasn't the first one. There was a referendum about European Union membership in the mid 70s. And, you know, it's a great thing to do if you've got the space and the capability to do it. And it's great to be able to engage with the great academic community thinking about the history of economic and politics uh, in the UK to do so.
0: So so did you find um, some guidelines from Versailles on on how to proceed or would that be too simplistic to uh, phrase it that way?
1: What is useful about these things is less the specific tactics but more the principles that come out of um, these things. And I think in that regard, you can go back a long way in history. For example, one principle that you might extract from Versailles is the realization that you need to understand the position of your interlocutors as well as possible before you start to engage. I mean, that is not a hugely surprising insight, but it's still one that I think is important to have in your mind. And realizing that these principles don't change so much over the decades, I think it's also um, a, an interesting realization for policy officials. So I do think there are more parallels that first appears when you start looking into historical precedent.
0: That's a fascinating way of looking at that indeed, like, and it's worthwhile to remember it, um, like, rather more often than not. So In your paper, you say that um, there is now a clear recognition that the Treasury is the ultimate guarantor of the financial system as the only institution that can balance the interest of the taxpayer and the banking sector across multiple generations. So that is quite a big statement. Is that your summary of the importance of the Treasury?
1: I remember well writing that in my paper, and it's one of my favorite passages of it. And I suppose... It comes from the realization of when you get these big moments in history—a shock or a crisis—and they make you reevaluate the policy consensus that existed at a time. My paper just looks at a period roughly 1999 to 2019, so it stops before we get to the to the pandemic last year. And in that 20-year period, clearly the biggest moment that stands out is the global financial crisis. And I suppose what happened then was a realization that the era of light-touch regulation, with a central bank mostly focused on macroeconomic management rather than also equally considering financial stability, wouldn't necessarily lead to um, optimal outcomes for society. And obviously, the public sector uh, had to acquire a huge number of assets and liabilities as a result of the financial crisis and uh, to an extent a lot of that is still with us today 12 years later and it'll probably still be with us for generations to come and that's what i mean about multiple generations sometimes the acquisition of liabilities and assets that happens when you get a big macroeconomic shock takes many decades to repay and it is only an institution with with the deep pockets and uh, capacity for huge balance sheet ex- expansion like the treasury can do that this is not to ast- underestimate the power of central banks but you know central banks mostly operate by affecting the price of money and um, these effects don't have an impact in the long run obviously they have a huge role now and this is one of the big insights that in terms of what's changed since the global financial crisis but that is more in terms of preventing a future shock
0: that is very interesting um, conclusions to think that um, while the crisis hits and we try to resolve it, there needs to be someone standing step back a little bit with small organizations and big pockets <laughs> to take over and um, make all of uh, these measures sustainable um, for the economies for, for the years to come. So does the Treasury have an archive? Do you collect your records and make them available to the general public?
1: Sure, we, we sort of do. Um, so in the United Kingdom, there's a thing called the 30-year rule, which is uh, gradually becoming the 20-year rule. And that is um, a process by which the records produced in policy development and in the decisions by ministers had to be transferred to the National Archives before you reach the 30 or 20 year point. The National Archives then makes them available to the public as a whole. For the treasury, I think, if you went to the National Archives, you can now find records going back to the mid 1990s. The the, the hope is that we'll soon get to a point where we we are able to transfer everything after just 20 years. Uh, Before you get to the 20 year point, um, the records are available internally. So they are there if policy teams want to consult them to inform their policy development. And while we don't have a, an archivist, we do have a team in the Treasury. We have a more modern name for it, the Knowledge and Information Management Team, who is basically there to make sure that everyone declares their records, files them, and also helps policy teams uh, access past records. There was an example recently in my team where we wanted to consult, check about a decision that the Chancellor of the Exchequer took in 2007. Uh, Nothing was available in the team's own filing system, but we were able to find the relevant um, submission to the minister by checking the paper records and they were available and all perfectly filed and um, accessible.
0: That's that's fantastic. So you do have an archive. It just is named Information and Knowledge Management Team. So if... If you would be in the position to encourage new research into the records and archives of the Treasury, which do you think are the most fascinating records or topics to investigate in your archive?
1: So in a way, in terms of what's available to the public, I do think the period in the 1970s is really fascinating because it shows the consequences of a collapse in the credibility of the macroeconomic framework. And I think that is a topic that a lot of people are thinking about now. In terms of the things that we haven't yet released to the National Archive, but will be released in due course, you won't be surprised to hear that I think, obviously, the financial crisis. And in the case of the UK, I would say that starts in 2007 with the collapse of Northern Rock, one of our smaller banks, but then continues really up to, I would say, 2010 or 11, once the, the government changes and what many people call the, uh, the politics of austerity came in. That's a fascinating period. And I very much hope that people would look at it with interest when we release it to the National Archives in years to come.
0: Perfect. I mean, only uh, financial history enthusiasts can call periods of austerity fascinating. But um, it's very good to know for all of those researching this um, recent part of financial history that soon they should turn their attention to the National Archives, or to the HM Treasury to see what they can find for this um, very close period. Um, That's fantastic. So, uh, what are you researching next? Do you have one topic you're particularly interested in?
1: I was very good friends with a, a famous UK journalist called Samuel Britton. I met him when I worked at the Financial Times briefly in the in the mid 2000s, and we um, we've been we were friends ever since. And he passed away last year. Uh, and he's always been a big fan and follower of the history of the Treasury as an institution. So I've been thinking about uh, whether I can do something that collects uh, some of his insights about the Treasury over the decades. And and, I mean, it wouldn't be the sort of thing that has any new insights, but I think it would be a nice tribute to Samuel's work as a follower of the Treasury. Whether I get around to producing something soon remains to be seen because obviously it's also a very busy time in government at the moment.
0: Yeah, indeed. But I think it could be very fascinating because then you you collect an outsider's perspective, which can, you know, add new insights um, to your own history as well. Uh, last question. Do you have a favourite finance history book?
1: Professor Richard Roberts, who passed away a few years ago. I do like his books. Um, and, you know, the one about the panic in the city of London in 1914, He also wrote a shorter text about the IMF crisis in the UK in 1976, and obviously he wrote the the history of HSBC as a bank and and others. Uh, I think he's a great writer of financial history, even when the topics are quite technical or where there is a very complex set of actors and interactions, he really brings it to life. Uh, It's a shame that he's not with us anymore, but I do think his writing is among the best in in financial history.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, I met him a few years ago and he had a very enthusiastic way of presenting his topic and making them accessible. Thank you very much, um, Mario, for sharing um, your insights about the the history of the HM Treasury with um, our listeners. Um, And everybody interested in in these topics we discussed will be directed your way from us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carmen. It's been a great pleasure.
0: This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non for profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making, and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.